Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. Over the past few years, we've increasingly heard the phrases Black Lives Matter and Black Girl Magic. Black Lives Matter in response to police killings of unarmed Black people with the phrase and hashtag growing into a movement after the 2014 police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, a city that is in St. Louis County. And Black Girl Magic, just in response to the all around awesomeness and talent of Black women in general and their centrality to progressive social change in particular. I'm delighted that on today's podcast, we have as our very special guest, a person who embodies the hope, vision, potential, and promise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And she is a daily walking, talking manifestation of Black girl magic. I'm super excited for today's podcast. So let's get right to it. For our conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Charlene, do you want to introduce our very special guest? Hey, Steve, I'd be happy to. I'm really excited for our conversation with today's guest. St. Louis, Missouri's new mayor, Tashwara Jones. Mayor Jones is a woman on a mission. Before she officially became the first African-American mayor of St. Louis, which by the way, she just won her election on April 20th, woohoo, less than a month ago. But uh, like I said, before becoming mayor, she was the first African-American woman in Missouri history to hold the position of assistant minority floor leader. She then went on to serve as the first African-American woman treasurer of St. Louis and transformed that office into one that actually took care of its citizens. We're going to talk more about that later. And before entering public office, she worked as a hospital administrator for several years. And she also worked as the vice president of the minority-owned investment banking firm, Blaylock Robert Van LLC. In 2012, she and her dad, who has played a crucial role in her personal and political life were named by St. Louis Magazine as two of the top 100 people shaping St. Louis. A political insider was quoted in that article saying, she's going to be mayor someday and she proved them right. She's a graduate of Hampton University, the historically black university where she majored in finance. She also received graduate degrees from St. Louis University and Harvard University. And she's a member of the historically black sorority, Delta Sigma Theta. Like I mentioned, she was inaugurated just three weeks ago, and she's been off and running ever since. And bear with me, I'm about to finish up her bio because there's so much to say, but I'm a little worried she might be too modest to tell us this. But here are just a few examples of all that she has gotten done again in the past three weeks. Just think about what have you gotten done in the past three weeks? I know I haven't gotten done much, maybe made a few meals maybe did my laundry, you know, a couple of times. But in three weeks, as the leader of the second largest city in Missouri, she signed Executive Order 1, which will allow the city's Citizen Oversight Board greater access to citizen-initiated police misconduct complaints. She revised the fiscal year 2022 budget to redirect $4 million from the police department to fund housing, victim support, and more. She also signed the Crown Act, which would end race-based hair discrimination, and she vetoed two tax abatement bills that would have reduced property taxes for developers at the expense of St. Louis public schools. So whew, that's a lot in just three weeks. Welcome, Mayor Jones. Thank you for having me. So great to have you here today. Thank you for being here. 
so in in preparing for the podcast, we were searching and we came across some of these awesome TikTok videos that you have with your uh, son that you've put on you know Twitter and TikTok. So I, I did want to just start by asking that: Do you think that you are the best dancer of all the mayors in America? I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen any of the other mayors dance. Uh, so I'll have to see some video and make some comparisons. <laughs> like how so, tough is the competition? <laughs> right, yeah. right. We, we how tough could a, it be? <laughs> we think you're a front runner there. there. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that we're so excited about you becoming mayor of St. Louis also is because of the history of St. Louis within this country, right? And so I'm working on a, on a second book uh, that's really it's you know called um, how we win the Civil War, which draws the continuity from the resistance post Civil War of the Confederates to today. And so one of the things I was learning through that was that really the whole Dred Scott Supreme Court case, right, which was helped precipitate the Civil War, where the court concluded that black folks had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. Which I didn't even actually real, know that Dred Scott lived in St. Louis and that that case started in St. Louis. Um, and then now St. Louis has a black woman mayor. So I think that that I just wanted to share that historical context. And then also as we were preparing for the interview. Yeah, I learned that your father was active in Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns and that Jesse's campaigns were really my political baptism right? and that dedicated um, uh, Brown as the new white in part to Reverend Jackson. So uh, we have that history. But unlike you, I did not do a stint as an investment banker before going into <laughs> politics. So I was wondering if you could just start by telling us about your journey and what influenced you and motivated you to go into politics. I think what I'm going to tell your listeners is somewhat of a surprise because I never wanted to be a politician. Um, But my mama, God rest her soul, used to tell me all the time that the quickest way to make God laugh is to tell him what you would never do. (laughs) So, um, so, right. My father was in politics. I shied away from it most of my adult life. But, you know, there's you know, when there's a calling on your life, there's really nothing you can do to shy away from it. Um, And so when um, in my late 20s, I became a committee woman. And in 2004, I was asked by my uh, predecessor uh, in the state house to run for her seat because she was about to run for state senate. Uh, And I was making the preparations to run for state rep. And then um, in two. The, the election was in 2008 and in 2000, late 2006, I got knocked up and, you know, got pregnant with my son. And I just I just knew that that was a sign that politics was not the life for me. Mm-hmm. But a couple of friends uh, kind of talked me through it and uh, and they were actually they were men. And they the conversation went like, well, when are you going to have the baby? And I said, September 2007. And they said, well, when does filing open? And I said, February of 2008. And they said, oh, well, you have plenty of time. You oh. can, you know, from men, right? <laughs> right. Can, I'm like, <laughs> little do they a, know. Little do they know, you know, and both of these men were married. So, you know, and I'm on my own, but they said, well, you can take a few months off and uh, have the baby <laughs> and then launch your campaign from there. But I, I felt like the more that I tried to turn away from politics, I, again, I just felt like God had this calling on my life. Mm. And I and he kept showing me that it's possible. So I just kind of surrendered. And I was like, OK, Lord, I, 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 I hear you. I surrender. But if this is what you want me to do, then you know, I'm sure that you're going to provide and, and, and make sure that I can be successful at this because, you know, I don't 
I'm a mom and a single mom at that. And the last thing I want to do is ruin my child's life because of a career decision I made. But true to form, you know, I, I took a few months off. Um, and then that next summer when my child was, you know, almost one, but, you know, we would, I would put him in a stroller after I would get off work about four or five o'clock, pick him up from daycare, put him in a stroller and use the next couple hours of daylight to knock on doors. Uh, and I, the one thing I learned that summer was that, you know, he loved being outside. Uh, and two, babies get you votes. Uh, so <laughs> I, you know, I would show up at people's doorstep with my son in, in the stroller and all he had was a snack and, you know, some juice and he was fine. Um, but I, I, and then I won my first election by 233 votes. Um, and Aww. then when I went to Jeff City um, to be a state rep, I was uh, connected with people who just took my son in and cared for him like he was their own. So that allowed me to, you know, when we had late nights in session up to midnight or two or three o'clock, you know, he would be with um, either my legislative assistant and her husband, who he now considers his, you know, his, his white grandparents uh, that live in Holt <laughs> Summit, Missouri. Um, and or, you know, our, we also found a babysitter who just, you know, took us in as family as well. Um, and she would let him spend the night with her and she didn't charge me for it. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So, I mean, just it's a know, village, the village, the village, right. Mm. The village uh, came in. Ta- uh, it, it, it just took care of us. And my second uh, term, he was a little older and in preschool and his aunt and uncle uh, would keep him during the week and take him back and forth to school. It just happened to be at the same school that their older children were at. Uh, so that worked out perfectly. It's just like everything aligned and the stars aligned for me to be able to be successful uh, in politics and raise my child at the same time. And when he turned four or right, you know, right after he turned four, the treasurer's office uh, became a, an open seat. Uh, the, my predecessor in the treasurer's office decided not to run again for another term. He had been there for over 30 years. Wow. And um, Several people convinced me to to run, um, but this was a, a, a little bit of a different election in that I was the only woman in an election in an election full of men. There were three men and me, and I ran on a platform of reforming the office, of course, but also on a platform of financial empowerment, bringing financial empowerment resources to the treasurer's office because the treasurer was the chief banking and investment officer for the city. And so leveraging those relationships with financial institutions uh, to hold them accountable to the Community Reinvestment Act or CRA and make sure that they're making market investments in our communities uh, as a result of CRA. So I won um, by about 10 percentage points in that race and uh, my star began to rise locally. Uh, So in 2017, uh, again, uh, the mayor uh, decided not to run for another term, and so that seat was open. Uh, but that race was a little um, more difficult. Uh, there were seven people in that race, five black, two right. white, and in a partisan primary, uh, the black candidate split the vote uh, horribly, and I came within yeah. 80, 888 votes of winning. Yeah. And uh, it was a hard loss. It was a hard fought loss. But um, I continued my work as treasurer. Uh, there was still work to do. Um, and I, I continued to make sure that I did the best that I could at the job that I had. 
And lo and behold, uh, 2020 rolls around and I'm preparing to run again for mayor. And my predecessor, uh, who won in 2017, announced that she wasn't going to run again. So again, there was an open seat uh, that I ran for and finally won uh, in 2021. I'm interested in the decision to run for treasurer. So a lot of a lot of different people, particularly you know people of color um, who go into politics, run for state legislature. I ran for state legislature, but I didn't win. Right? So there is that background to it as well. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking that I don't really know that many people who have run for treasurer or for a fiscal office. So I'm curious, what gave you the motivation and, and the confidence that that was the office that you should seek? Uh, well, the treasurer of the city of St. Louis is very unique in that not only it's just, is it the chief banking and investment officer and cash management officer for the city, but also it's the parking supervisor. Uh, through this weird uh, state law um, in Missouri. And I saw this as an opportunity uh, to do something different with our parking division. So not only did I increase the technology because we were stuck in the 19th century, only collecting cash as our primary form of payment. So I upgraded the technology. We now have an app. Um, all of our meters are digital meters and take credit cards um, and still take coins but also um, and upgraded our garages where they also take credit cards. But now I use, a, well, now the treasurer's office uh, uses a portion of uh, parking revenue to fund our financial empowerment initiatives. And so I opened the Office of Financial Empowerment in City Hall, um, and our primary mission is to help people make better choices with their money. So one of the uh, biggest programs that we started in the treasurer's office is the College Kids Children's Savings Account Program, which was almost identical to San Francisco's Kindergarten to College Program, started by uh, San Francisco Treasurer Jose Cisneros. And I literally looked up what other treasurers were doing across the country, found Jose and called him up and asked him to give me 30 minutes of his time so I can uh, learn what he did and how to replicate that. Uh, in St. Louis. So the Office of Financial Empowerment and the College Kids programs are replicated after uh, San Francisco's. And um, right now we have over 18,000 children with over one and a half million dollars saved for their futures because uh, studies show that children with less than $500 saved are three times more likely to go to college and four times more likely to complete college. So making sure that children from an early age, uh, have an account and know that uh, that their government expects them to succeed uh, past high school is really, really important to me. And now that I'm mayor, I look forward to working with uh, my successor in that office, uh, which I had a chance to appoint. His name is Adam Lane. To uh, I'm looking forward to expanding that program and bookending it. So our children have three things when they graduate. Uh, they have a their high school diploma, they have their credit report, and they have an offer letter to do something, uh, either you know, go to a trade or a trade school or a union apprenticeship or two or four year college. Uh, so I am looking forward to having an even stronger partnership with our public schools to make sure that our children that we take away all of the barriers for our children's success. Mayor, I just thank you so much for sharing so much of how you revolutionized 
you know, the the role of city treasurer and also just educated me and I'm sure a lot of other uh, listeners, because I don't think we often as voters think about the role of the treasurer. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it, uh, I mean, it's, it's, not, not sexy. it's not sexy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to say that. <laughs> but it doesn't get as much coverage and people don't, you know, it's just not one of those seats that people are like, oh, yeah, I, I, I know who's running for that. And I know what that person does. And, you know, you hear you go, yeah, that person takes care of money. But you don't think about all the revolutionary ways, progressive ways and innovative ways uh, and social justice ways that that person can make a difference by um, the kind of, like you said, reaching out to your counterpart in San Francisco and just all the ways in which you really went out of your way to find the best ways um, to use the city's money to for, for the good of the people. I don't even think people really ever think about that. So I just appreciate that level of education and awareness. Um, but my next question is going to be, I wanna bring you back to 2012. Um, and this is gonna tie into both when you were running for treasurer, but also the kind of, let's call it, um, let's see, the family, this is, we try to keep it family friendly, but you know, the the, the grief that you received um, when running as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to bring up this story, some background about the local paper, uh, the, the largest paper in the, air in the city, which is the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, your best friend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right, and they had, um, again, it was the largest paper in the city, uh, and the readers turn to it. My understanding is they kind of are known for having the most coveted newspaper political endorsement. So people really look to it. They had at the time endorsed your opponent, Fred Wessels. Mm-hmm. And not only did they you know, go and endorse him, but they in their endorsement said that you didn't they didn't think that you had the experience to manage the city's banking needs, even though you were a vice president at the time of an investment banking firm. And, you know, after that, the beef wasn't over because then during your first mayor race in 2017, you then declined the then standard interview with the paper's editorial board and instead wrote a beautiful, in my opinion, but scathing letter calling them out for their thinly veiled racism and preference for the status quo past. So you definitely didn't mince words there. And I just loved reading it four years later. Um, just thinking, you know, you really told them and you just it's like what so many probably um, uh, leaders of color, especially women, black women, what want to write back. And you actually did it. You know, you just you took that risk and you called it your Fannie Lou Hamer moment because yeah. you were. And this is a famous quote by Fannie Lou Hamer, sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I wanted to just ask you what that decision was like, because, again, so many of us have wanted to speak to power that way. And you did it so publicly. Uh, it was a last straw for you. How did you decide to do that? And when you were just like, you know, what, I'm not giving you an interview and I'm going to also write you a letter, tell you exactly what I think. So um, that process was uh, it was life changing and eye opening for me. Um, I had been going back and forth with my campaign team, with my dad for several days leading up to um, the time and date of what was supposed to be my interview. And I kept saying, no, I'm not going to interview with them. And their response was, nobody turns down the editorial board. You can't do that. Right. (laughs) And I said, why not? I said, I already know that they're not going to endorse me. Um, This is after a string of other editorials. Uh, They called me the high flying treasurer and I needed to be brought down. 
Mm. Um, in, in addition mm. to other thinly veiled racist insults. Right. And, uh, and I said, I'm not about to participate in a self-fulfilling prophecy. Just mm. not going to do it. And the morning of, um, as I'm getting myself and my son ready for school, I had what I now think was almost a nervous breakdown. Oh. Um, and uh, my father lives across the street from us. And my son uh, called him and uh, and he said he just he's crying and oh, doesn't know man. what to do. And he said, you know, you need to get over here. Mommy's just, you know, screaming out of control mm-hmm. um, because I just knew that that was something I wasn't going to do. And I had to I had to take a stand. And so mm-hmm. uh, the letter that we eventually sent and then put out um, at, on the St. Louis Americans webpage were my prepared remarks for that for that meeting. So oh. we just decided to issue it as a, a open letter to the uh, editorial board. So powerful. And I know that 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 went around and it inspired a lot of people. And it's just such a courageous, courageous move. And, and I still have an interview with him. Good for you. I, just, I don't I don't blame you. I'm just so sorry you had to go through that. Well, right. I want to pick up on that on the point. It's something, something that doesn't get talked a lot about in public life is in terms of the challenges of mental health. So I'm wondering, how do you persevere and how do you persevere as a person of color and as a black woman? And what is it? Uh, James Baldwin had this um, quote. It says that to be black and relatively conscious in America is to be in a rage almost all the time. And I gave a speech to a group of health professionals. And I said, what does it do to your health and to your blood pressure if you're in a rage almost all the time? And so that's an unappreciated part of, frankly, being Black in politics. And so you went through that in 2012. And, and, and both your, your comfort and willingness to talk about it, frankly, I think is striking and, and, and notable. And then you had another incredibly painful defeat in 2017. And yet, you persevered. And mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of what I mean by, by Black Girl Magic, right? I mean, Stacey Abrams had an incredibly painful defeat in 2018, and she persevered and did the work that flipped Georgia, that changed the country, frankly. So I wonder if you could just talk about that in terms of how, how you found the strength and, and, and what was it that enabled you to continue persevering in the face of all of these different difficulties? I, I think that... Um... There's this horrible myth that Black women are just resilient and strong. And, and, I, and I say a horrible myth because we don't have the space and opportunity to have um, experiences like the one I described uh, the morning of my uh, supposed interview with the uh, editorial board. Um, and I try to make my, my tests, my testimony, um, and I did that the same uh, just last summer when I had um, surgery uh, to remove uterine fibroids and the problems that I went through then, um, because a lot of women are suffering in silence and aren't telling their story. And, and, and telling our stories helps other people realize that, A, we are human. We are not super, super women or That's super right. heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, And that I believe that being a superhero means owning up to and and telling your truths. Um, So 
telling the truth that I almost had a nervous breakdown or or felt like I was having one in that moment or um, or what my uh, reproductive health looks like. So others who may be experiencing the same thing can also get themselves checked out. Um, and I believe that telling that and living in my truth and showing up as, as my authentic self um, allows me to keep going. Uh, and then also, you know, my son is the most adorable person in my life. Mm. And, um, and trying to make sure that I change St. Louis to be better for him and, and, and his friends and other children who look like him. Um, because one day we were having a conversation about what the mayor does. And I told him that, you know, all of the departments that the mayor is over. And he said, well, will you be over the police? I said, yes, I'll be over the police. He says, well, that means I'll be safe. Mm. And, um, and I couldn't tell him, you know, no, that's a false sense of security. But for him to think that his mother has to become, become mayor in order for him to feel safe with interactions with police officers really hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, but it also turned into an opportunity. So how can I transform public safety so our officers see our children as children? Uh, he's 13 years old and six feet tall. Wow. So how do we make sure that you know, he has the space and the opportunity to make mistakes and still live to tell about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, on, on that point, I wanted to to get into that because there's a lot of discussion in national politics right now about this whole question, this you know phrase of defund the police. Right. And mm -hmm. that. So this is out there. And then you've got, you know, obviously the right wing going nuts about it. But you even have a lot of Democrats saying it's a bad statement. You know, we've lost votes, et cetera, because of it even though we won the election in 2020. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about, have you talked about this question of public safety, right? I think that that's kind of gets lost in the midst of defund the police, but I just wanted to share also this, when people, I, and I hear this defund the police piece, I think of this 2014 LA Times headline about the school district, and not even the police, the school district. The headline says, Los Angeles schools police will return grenade launchers, but keep rifles and armored vehicles. And that's just the police, that's just the school district there. So in terms of the militarization of the police, I don't think people fully appreciate that. So you're mayor now, your son shared this concern to you. How do you look at what has to happen in terms of making greater public safety within the city of St. Louis? Yeah, well, we've been doing the same thing over and over and over again for decades. And I don't believe it's made us safer. So we have to try something different. Um, and that's something different for me is transforming our public safety department and reallocating dollars to things that we know work in other cities and also things that we know will keep us safe. Uh, St. Louis has the unfortunate um, or is unfortunately known for having the most police killings per capita in the country. And how do we transform our public safety system and our police department uh, to uh, not lead with, uh, to, to shoot first and ask questions later. So in my opinion, that's about deploying the right professional to the right call. And so the $4 million we took out of vacant positions, which have been vacant for decades, 
um, are going to affordable housing because housing, I believe housing is a right, not a privilege. Um, it's going to uh, victim support services. And it's also going to uh, um, ha having more social workers and other uh, professionals within our police departments. Mm -hmm. So how do we deploy the right professional to the right call? And doing that frees up police to do police-involved work, the work that they were trained to do because our officers are exhausted um, mm -hmm. from being deployed to do everything. And so we need to, we need to send the right resource to the right call because oftentimes, and as we've seen in St. Louis several times, um, we've seen people who needed mental health help um, lose their lives after a call, after the police showed up. So we have to we have to turn the tide here and we can't reform our way out of it. We have to transform it. Yeah. No, it reminds me of after um, Richard Brooks was killed in Atlanta mm -hmm. after the police came and he was sleeping in his car. Right? He that, needed a sobering center. He didn't right. need that. Right. Right. Yeah, right. No, um, that's right. The comedian Kamal Bell says that we need a department of of uh, you. You OK? Right. So he mm. should knock on his window and say, I'm with the department of you. OK, you OK. Mm -hmm. Can you give, can I give you a ride? Right. And so instead of militarizing these, I noted that you were endorsed by the black police officers. Is that correct? Yes. And so I'm curious, what's the potential in terms of engaging members of the police department in rethinking public safety from a less militarized to a more sophisticated approach? Um, one of the, uh, well, I just hired their business manager as my senior advisor to the public safety director. Oh. Um, so, uh, but also, can we peel that back a, a moment? We have two separate police unions in St. Louis. We have a black police officers union and a white police officers union. Mm. Um, and uh, if, in my opinion is, if they can't trust each other mm. to be in the same union, how can mm. we trust them? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's going to be a, a conversation we'll have to have moving forward um, as far as, you know, how they negotiate um, their collective bargaining agreements and what what's in them and who's at the table. But I have heard from many rank and file officers who um, applauded me for hiring her, as well as former police chief Dr. Dan Isom, who has a Ph.D. in criminology, um, but also. I've heard from them that, again, they're exhausted and, and the things that I am proposing about deploying the right professional to the right call are things that are, are going to help them do a better job at the things that they were trained to do. You mentioned that you hired this person. It brings up to me this other larger question, I think, that doesn't get talked about in movement circles. We spend a lot of time on the movement side protesting those in power. And then sometimes we do these movements to get people into power. But then it's like, what do you not only what do you do, but how do you know what to do once you get in power, right? And so it's like, again, like getting back to somebody like, you know, Stacey Abrams, Stacey read the entire Georgia government code. So she knew exactly what specific <laughs> things she wanted to change. So I'm curious what your team has been like, or how have you known what are the specific priorities and levers to, you know, pull and people to put in position? How have you had the knowledge base to really understand how to bring about the kind of change you want to see. Yeah, well, I think a leader is only as smart or good as the as the team that she puts around her. 
Uh, so the people that I mentioned earlier are part of that team, uh, as well as um, I have uh, a couple of really bright attorneys as my chief of staff and director of policy and development uh, to uh, to go through and comb through, right, the ordinances and the code uh, to see what is actually possible. Um, and so we all worked together to draft that executive order about the Citizen Oversight Board, which was born out of the Ferguson protests. Um, and we found that um, as we got into the office that the Citizen Oversight Board had no teeth and that the police department under former leadership um, had been literally playing games. Uh, with the Citizen Oversight Board. They are supposed to receive all complaints uh, that citizens make against police officers. And because they were not uh, filling out the right form, uh, our Internal Affairs Department was not giving all of the complaints to the Citizen Oversight Board, nor were they informing people that they needed to uh, make their uh, complaints uh, on a specific form. Uh, and so if they didn't if they didn't fill out the form, then the Citizen Oversight Board didn't get the complaints. So one of the first things I did was make sure that uh, all complaints dating back to 2017, which was after I, I can't remember why we chose 2017. Well, we wanted to make sure that under the the entire last administration, at least um, received that this that all of those complaints were turned over to the Citizen Oversight Board. I mean, it's supposed to be there to in investigate uh, police-involved shootings of which they had received not one. And there were several that have happened between 2017 and 2021. And also, you know, we have a situation in our jails. Uh, one of the other things I did in my first three weeks was I visited both of our jail facilities, one of which uh, we've had several uprisings uh, in the past several months, uh, and talked to the detainees in person about the conditions that they are being held in because as mayor, I do believe that uh, it is my duty to make sure that they're treated with dignity and respect, even if they have not received their day in court. Uh, and because if they do receive their day in court and they are found innocent, then how are we making sure that they can um, uh, be productive citizens once we let them out of our system? We're not here to hold them in cages like rats. Uh, uh, we're here to re rehabilitate them and to make sure uh, that uh, they can return uh, to uh, uh, return to their families healthy That's because right. it's someone's it's someone's dad, it's someone's mother, someone's relative, someone's family. Mm -hmm. And as someone uh, who I'm the daughter of someone who was formerly incarcerated, so it's mm. personal for me. And so again, you know, it's it's one of those uh, opportunities that I have uh, as mayor uh, to make sure that uh, we are. Um, we're, that we're taking care of, of people um, in the right way that they should be taken care of. Man, I'm so struck. I'm going to jump in here and say I'm just so struck by, um, I was just very inspired by so much that you've shared today, but what you had said um, and, and you had shared about that you're a daughter of a formerly incarcerated person just reminds me of how important it is for our elected officials to come from the communities uh, that need this type of compassionate representation that you are at the intersection of your community in so many ways, right? As a, as a Black woman who uh, really understands a lot of what your constituents' real realities are in a way that um, many of our elected officials don't. Charlene, can I yeah. ask on that point, um, an electoral strategy question based on that point? 
because it's fascinating to me. Sure. Much of the conventional wisdom still is downplay the issues and concerns of people of color in general, black people in particular, you don't want to alienate any white people, um, as if all these people are going to come flocking to us in terms of a highly polarized society. So I'm curious, how, from an electoral strategy standpoint, how you approach this issue about being authentic from a community that's dealing with these issues and also trying to build a multiracial coalition. We just decided to, to lean into everything that makes up uh, the person that I am and not shy away from it and be honest and be truthful. I think we also saw during Stacey's election about, uh, she, about the debt that she had and how she embraced That's right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how then we also started to have this conversation about the black tax, right? About how um, people who um, are successful in their families oftentimes end up taking care of other people in their families. And that happens more times than we think. Mm. Um, and so I just felt, and, and this actually happened after the 2017 race, um, I felt before that that I wasn't being authentic and showing up as my authentic self. Mm. And once I made the change to actually show up and be exactly who I am, then the tide shifted. And that's mm. when we saw um, momentum start to gain in my race in 2017. And so I just continue to um, uh, to show up as as who I am and and tell the truth. And I think that people appreciate that um, more now, now more than ever when there's such a weave of lies and misinformation out on uh, all forms of social media. Uh, mm -hmm. They expect that their elected officials are going to show up and tell the truth, whether it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. um, so I just decided that, you know, this is who I am and voters are going to have to, they'll either love me or hate me for it. So speaking of social media, I did want to ask you about um, something that I came across, which is your running hashtag of things your son says called <laughs> Stuff Aiden Says. And it is so it is just so awesome. Uh, as Steve had mentioned, you you tweeted a TikTok of the two of you dancing. Super cute. And uh, by the way, I saw that you had posted that post on March 10th. You said it was your birthday. Yes, my, my birthday is March 11th, practically Yay. twinsies. Yay. Um, but I just appreciated it so much that you were you like you said, you put it out there. You're unapologetically, you know, black, black female, black mom when and just not, you know, hiding like any of your joy and your, you know, how you, you know, are with your son. It's really inspiring. I also I have a nine year old daughter, a little you know younger, and I was thinking the same thing. Like she says in most incredible stuff that I'm like, did you really just say that? Like I should start some sort of thread or you should because that's the only way you'll be able to come back to it. That's know, right because so. I'll forget I'll forget right. all of it. She won't remember <laughs> either. But my question was going to be um, how you know I know my daughter gets really inspired. As she listens to our podcast, and I know she's gonna be really inspired by hearing all that you have to say, especially all that you've overcome personally. I was wondering what kind of advice do you have to young people who are seeking encouragement to succeed in some aspect, especially when they feel that society as a whole tells them that they're not the people who can succeed in that area or see, succeed in that way? Um, I always tell them to show up as their authentic selves um, because 
people will appreciate you for showing up as who you are, not somebody you're trying to be. Um, and then also, um, you know, I, I tell, especially women who are considering running for office, they oftentimes we feel like, oh, if I had just this, uh, you know, another degree, or if I go back to school and do this, or, you know, do this type of training, yes, electoral politics training is important, but the other things that are in your life are enough. It mm. really, you are enough because you care about making a difference. And so that's the, the number one thing that, you know, that in my opinion, that we need um, from our elected officials to care enough to make a difference, to care enough to put their name on the ballot, uh, to run for office, to put their lives out there for everybody to see, because it's hard. Um, but it's but people appreciate you for for making that sacrifice. So uh, I know, well, you're running a city, so I know your time is busy. And so we want to kind of <laughs> you see what she did in three weeks. Right. And we didn't even um, cover it all. Got a lot of towards wrapping to up. So let's uh, close maybe with a little bit of a lighter question in terms of life balance issue, I guess, kind of like, is there something that you're like, that you're reading or watching, like a kind of what do you do to um, unwind and relax and, and decompress to a certain extent? Um, I like bourbon. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, so my and my friends know that. And so they've given me um, a plethora of different bourbons to try. Um, and so, you know, depending on the day, I'll just, you know, have a, a shot or two. Um, and I like Disney movies. Uh, that's mm. what I did on Mother's Day. My sister and I, she's uh, 24. Uh, she came home for the weekend and we, we laid on the couch all day and watched Disney movies. <laughs> you know, Aww. just try to watch things that kind of take my, uh, my, my time and attention away from whatever I'm currently working on. Um, and, and occasionally when I do get a chance or life slows down enough to read, um, there are several books that are sitting on my shelf to, to get into. I, I still have to finish Walter Johnson's The Broken Heart of America mm. um, and uh, Richard Rothstein's uh, The Color of Law are current or two that I'm trying to get through right now. Mm. The, uh, the uh, people of St. Louis, I think, would want us to let you get back to governing. But we really <laughs> just want to, well, A, thank you for your time and, and, and making the time to be on the, on the podcast. And really just to say, I think, you know, both politically, but really personally, how, you know, inspired and excited we are that you are in this position and you're leading the way you are. We're extremely grateful for your for your leadership and your work. Thank you. It's Thank an you. honor to be here. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you to our very special guest, Mayor Tashara Jones. And if you're not already, you can follow her on Twitter. She is at Tishara, T-I-S-H-A-U-R-A. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or signing up for our mailing list of Democracy in Color. We've got a new and improved uh, newsletter that we're putting out every week, so I think you people would enjoy that, so you can uh, sign up for that and tell your friends about it. And if you listen to your podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. 
recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. As we close, we'd like to leave you with this clip from Mayor Jones' election night victory speech. Until next time, keep the faith. I will not stay silent when I spot racism. I will not stay silent when I spot homophobia or transphobia. I will not stay silent when I spot xenophobia. I will not stay silent when I spot religious intolerance. I will not stay silent when I spot any injustice. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice. Every